0: A recent study found that lawyers struggle with substance abuse, particularly drinking, and with depression and anxiety, more commonly than some other professionals. Hi, I'm George Boracke, and this is Cityscape. My guest today knows all too well about problem drinking in the legal profession. Lisa F. Smith was addicted to alcohol and to drugs herself, while working at prominent New York City law firms. Lisa has been sober now for just over 12 years and shares her story of addiction and recovery in her new memoir, Girl Walks Out of a Bar. Lisa recently joined me in the studio to talk about it. Joining me now on Cityscape is Lisa F. Smith. She is the author of Girl Walks Out of a Bar. Sounds like a joke, Lisa, but it's not a joke at all.
1: No, it is not a joke at all. It's actually uh, my memoir of my descent into and recovery from high-functioning alcoholism and cocaine addiction as a lawyer in big law in corporate New York.
0: You start your book off with this line, It was 7 o'clock Monday morning, and I needed wine. In two hours, I'd have to be at work, which meant I was going to have to steady my shaking hands. How typical a morning was that for you?
1: At the end, very typical. At the end, I was uh, drinking and using cocaine around the clock, 24-7. I would, uh, as I was getting ready to try and go to sleep, put a glass of whatever I had, vodka or wine or whatever was handy, on the nightstand next to me because I knew in the morning I would wake up just with these sort of tremors from my guts, from my bones. It was just, uh, I couldn't get out of bed without throwing back something. And then it would start this cycle where I would be kind of plotting through, trying to get myself out the door, put myself together, but I'd have to drink to steady my hands, to steady my shakes. And then I would have to switch over and use some cocaine to kind of almost, I hate to say it, but straighten out. If you saw me in those days when I was not drinking, I looked a total wreck. I was shaky. I was sweaty. Uh, If I had a couple drinks in me and then balanced that out with some cocaine, that would sort of stop the slurring and um, make me more alert.
0: How did you figure all of that out? That's (laughs) what you needed to do.
1: You know, it's it's strange because it, it sort of stemmed out of everything that happened through the progression of addiction. It became just sort of the next thing I needed to do to get through. I had... Tried drugs and used drugs recreationally on and off since I was a kid. I, I think the first time I tried cocaine, I was fifteen. Wow! Um, but I was never a you know regular heavy user. And um, I, when I came back to New York after, uh, shortly after 9-11 in two thousand one, uh, by two thousand three, I really had gone into the worst of my decline.
0: And at what stage of your career were you at this point?
1: I was at that time a director of client development at a law firm, a big law firm, and I had stopped practicing law. I'd stopped practicing law after about five years in a big corporate firm, but it always stayed in law firms, always stayed in big law. And uh, I was on the business development side. I was responsible for a lot of uh, client teams. I worked directly with partners. And the job as I was needing to drink more and more and then needing to use Coke more and more became harder and harder to manage, but I was able to work from home a lot. So really what I needed to do was make sure I was steady enough to go in when I had to show up, which is what I did on those mornings. Um, And then I could, it was all just about getting to the next drink or drug. So how long do I have to show up in the office to make the right appearance? Can I shut my door? Can I get out of here? And You know, at a certain point when I was drinking in the morning, it was, I can't get out of here unless I do some coke and, you know, sort of straighten myself out. And no one suspected,
0: no one at work suspected.
1: You know, I, no one ever said a word to me. So I like to think that they didn't know because, you know, it's it's a little bit difficult to think about them actually knowing. Um, But in truth, I, I don't know what people... Suspected. No one. No one said anything to me, but behind my back, who knows what they said? You know, she reeks of wine. You know, she's never here. I, I don't know. So, you know, people in big law firms keep odd hours. It's not a culture where people talk about substance abuse openly.
0: But yet, substance abuse is a huge problem within the legal profession. It, Studies show it.
1: Yes, it is an enormous problem. There was a recent study that came out. Uh, in February, that was conducted jointly by the American Bar Association and Betty Ford Hazelden, and their findings I thought were stunning. It was to be on the on the uh, conservative side that one out of four active employed working lawyers has some sort of substance abuse issue, predominantly alcohol. Um, and you know, I thought that when it when it came out, um, that it, it had to be. You know that that just seemed like it couldn't possibly be that many before that the the last survey that had been done was twenty five years earlier that found one in five so
0: and the majority of those with drinking problems are relatively new to the profession
1: the The group that demonstrated the highest rate i think was over thirty percent were the was the group that was practicing between one and ten years, so yes, and that actually surprised me because. As I mentioned, it's a progressive disease, and my drinking got steadily worse over time. And I wonder if part of the reason that it seems to impact the younger lawyers in those numbers is because they're still fresh out of college, fresh out of law school, still in a culture and a lifestyle where they're drinking more. Maybe some of them, maybe the numbers go down as as people get older, because either people age out people who aren't destined for alcoholism start having kids and moving to the suburbs and not drinking as much and my the thing that i think is of concern is that who knows how many are dropping out of the profession altogether because they're not getting help and they're falling by the wayside
0: so with a study like that out there with the numbers glaring at you what do you think the legal profession needs to do to address this issue
1: i think um you know, I'd love to say that I think you know it would be great if we can all talk about this very openly, and it's all going to be you know exposed and out there, and that's that's going to be the answer. But realistically, law firm culture is not going to change overnight. It's super demanding, and it is um, you know it's always going to be a client service culture. But I, I think what we have to do is educate. I think the best thing that we can do is talk about the fact that. These are the numbers. So you know, when young lawyers come into um, come into their firms, you know, they learn where the copy machine is and how to work with their secretary and where the benefits people are. But nobody says to them in in much more than a passing way, to my experience, I could be wrong, listen, you may feel overwhelmed at some point. Maybe you're somebody who's prone to depression or anxiety. We have these resources. Virtually every firm is going to have an employee assistance program, which is a confidential resource that employees, lawyers, any employee can reach out to, to get matched with some sort of help on a mental health issue that could be something like grieving the death of a parent or a substance abuse issue. I think there's a a feeling that maybe these resources aren't as confidential as they are, but they are, and I think they need to be sort of driven home. Also, I think young lawyers and, and older lawyers need to be educated on the fact that there are great programs out there that are lawyer-run on I'm a member of the New York State Bar Association's Lawyer Assistance Committee. And somebody can reach out to me on that committee on um, confidentially, tell me they need some help, um, or just ask a question. So I think being able to point people to confidential resources, hey, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you think you're having that one extra drink you didn't have, or now it's an every night thing, Talk to somebody. And the firm won't know. The firm doesn't have to know.
0: So how soon after you entered the profession did you start drinking?
1: Well, I started drinking very young. Um I was drinking, I was like I said, I was a I was a social drinker. Um, but really uh I always knew I drink I drank differently than other people. I I, I loved to drink. And It was something I could control, I thought, Um, and it was a weekend thing. And if it was during the week, it wasn't crazy. Um, But what happened that really started the progression for me was as a first-year associate at a big law firm, um, there was a shift that was strictly market-driven, client-driven, and I got moved into an area of the firm, a practice that I felt unqualified for, Clearly, the firm let me go there. I did fine. But in my mind and uh, the way my brain works, I felt overwhelmed and scared and afraid of being found out as a fraud. And that was when I started drinking nightly. So that became when I truly felt that my drinking was had fully shifted to self-medication.
0: And those feelings of inadequacy, you write this in the book, were feelings that you had even when you were a kid?
1: Absolutely. I think, uh, I believe that addiction is a disease. I believe that there is a strong genetic component to it, that somebody like me, it runs in my family, if put in the right environment or the wrong environment, I guess, uh, can experience this full blown addiction. And for me, I always felt anxious, sad, and I first, you know, medicated myself with food as a kid, and and then switched over. But you know, for someone like me with that predisposition to depression and anxiety, going into that environment of a super intense, um, big city law firm was a, was a bad combination.
0: You also say it was a badge of honor for a woman in the legal profession to hold their liquor.
1: It definitely helped me hang out when I was um, a junior associate, sure. It was, um, you know, and this was 25 years ago. But yeah, I, everything, and, and I, I do believe this this remains true to a large extent. Social things in law firms revolve around drinking. Client entertainment in law firms revolves around drinking. There are very few firm events that aren't, uh, that don't involve alcohol. And... The way that people sort of bond and, and socialize is to go out for drinks. So we would work until 10 o'clock at night, and then it's like, oh, let's go get a drink. And you go with the people you work with to get a drink. The people who just sort of didn't drink and go home, maybe they weren't really in the center of the action so much. It helped also that I could reel off sports statistics, that I could, um, you know, talk about things, um, you know, that at that time, definitely a boys club mentality that I could sort of hang with the boys club.
0: Did your drinking ever impact your relationships with clients or colleagues?
1: It really didn't. My drinking, um, well, I shouldn't say that because I don't know what other people think about that. But um, from my perspective, you know, I practiced for five years and it really, frankly, got me closer to my colleagues at that time. And it wasn't, I was drinking every night at that point. But I still felt like, oh, I can have, you know, if I want to just have two drinks tonight, I can do that. And I was pretty successful at that for a while. The problem was that I wouldn't know if, if I, when I had a drink and I could think I'm only going to have two, sometimes I'd end up having 10. But I, I think with with clients at the time as, as a lawyer, as a junior lawyer, it was what we did. We went out even for a lunch and ordered big martinis.
0: While it seemed like your professional life was under control despite your addiction, your personal life, it seems, based on what I read in your book, was still a wreck because you write that you didn't even own pajamas. (laughs) Having something normal to sleep in was just another thing that your alcoholic life had rendered unimportant to you, like doing laundry and opening mail.
1: Yes. I think it's hard for, it's, it's always been hard to explain how the addiction fully owns your brain when you're in it. Um, and active at that to that extent. So sometimes talking about those things that don't happen are, are a way, you know, to convey. it. I would pick up my mail and just throw it in a pile um, because I would then walk in, pour a glass of wine, throw the mail down. And by the time I thought I would open the mail, you know, I was doing something else and and not uh, interested in looking at my bills. And what happened was, something like that, I would end up... I had my renter's insurance canceled on my apartment because I hadn't paid the bill. It wasn't that I didn't have the money. It was that I just hadn't opened a bill in that many months. And I remember when I met a friend um, who's at, who's in the book and he was in my apartment he was like oh did you just get home from vacation or something and i said, no why he's like well that's a giant pile of mail there and i remember i would get so i got so embarrassed but more than that i got angry at him how dare you think there's something wrong with my you know 2 foot pile of mail sitting here
0: so you not only kept your addiction a secret from your colleagues you also kept it a secret from family and friends
1: That's right. That's right. To the extent I could control that. And at first, it wasn't that hard. For many years, you know, nobody had to know if I went out to dinner with my friends, everybody goes home and goes to bed, but I go to the liquor store, get another bottle of wine and drink it by myself at home. And that carried on and but by the end when it was certainly by the time it was 24 7 I had to be very careful about even socializing with people the fantasy as an active alcoholic addict in that in that circumstance is to just be fully stocked with booze drugs cigarettes at the time and be locked alone in in my dark apartment and not go out um and uh Anybody who would see me in the off hours, I it would mean I would have to keep myself sort of together for that period of time. And that got more and more challenging. So I just isolated.
0: Did you try to rationalize your drug and alcohol use?
1: Oh, my God. All the time. I don't I I don't. I I never heard a rationalization I didn't like. Um, I remember, and I remember thinking at the time, this is a terrible rationalization, but I'm going to take it anyway. When it shifted, because at first I drank at night, then I was drinking at lunch, and I thought, well, that's okay. You know, people people drink at lunch and it really wasn't a hugely common thing. And I would say, but in France, in France, everybody drinks at lunch. So really this is no different than when I'm, you know, than if I were in France. And then when I started drinking in the morning at breakfast, I literally said to myself, well, it's lunchtime in Paris, so people are drinking. So it's really an okay time of day to be drinking.
0: Well, wow, you really did reach for what you can grab. I huh? would grab
1: anything. Yeah. Being a lawyer probably uh helped me help me formulate arguments in my own brain.
0: So when did you admit to yourself that this is not acceptable? I need help.
1: Well, I knew 10 years before I got sober that I was an alcoholic. I knew when I got to the point um and and this was certainly by at least 2003, that I knew I would say to myself in the morning, I'm not going to drink today. And if I go to the liquor store and buy a bottle of wine tonight, or two bottles of wine, which is what I would have needed, that means I'm an alcoholic and that's a problem. And that's what I would think at 9 in the morning. And then by 3 in the afternoon, forget it. I'm going, I'm going, I'm drinking the whole thing. And it was to a point where, you know, people noticed... I had someone at work notice my hands were shaking at around that time, 10 years before I got sober. And uh, she so oh, it was in the morning. And um, I just out of my mouth, I just said, oh, yeah, I, I had too much coffee and I didn't have anything to eat this morning. And I put my hands under my desk. And first of all, I wasn't even drinking coffee at the time. And second, I was so angry at her. How dare you? But then I thought, you know, this is pretty bad now. I'm, I've got lies pouring out of my mouth around this. But I took a decision that I always thought maybe I, I, I'm going to get it under control. I'm going to get it under control. And then at a certain point, I just said, you know what, I'm not going to get it under control. I'm always going to be an alcoholic, and I'm going to just die young. I, I stopped contributing to my 401k at work because I said, I'm never going to be 65 to collect this thing. I'm not going to live till 40. Why am I putting money away for retirement? And and I withdrew out of the 401k program <laughs> at my law firm at the time.
0: So then what inspired you to get help?
1: It was that it was one morning. It was a Monday morning. I had been home ostensibly working on a project, which gave me the excuse to family and friends to say, I can't see you this weekend. I'm working, which I'm sure, you know, I, I know what I was working on that weekend. And and I, you know, I I was working in between What I was doing. And it was Monday. I probably hadn't eaten much, if anything. And then um, I got in the shower. I got dressed. I was ready to go to work because I was supposed to be in the office for a meeting. And I remember I put my laptop in its case. I picked up my New York Times check my lipstick to make sure it's not on my teeth and check my nose and make sure it's not bleeding. And I walked out the door and I realized I was I was out of coke. I was out of drugs. And I had meant to save more. And I started thinking I was thinking about, oh, my God, I'm going to have to leave again early today. I got to call the dealer. I'm going to have to meet up with him. And the utter and and I had basically what seemed like an anxiety attack. And it just overwhelmed me. And the utter exhaustion, it is such hard work to be, you know, high and drunk 24-7. And, you know, I, I just – I got to the elevator. I went to push the down button and I said, I can't. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And um, it just – it, I was just – too exhausted and sick. I was very sick at the time, too. I was throwing up blood. There were other physical things happening. I went into my apartment and I called my friend in the building who had been the one person who had sort of seen what was happening because I was getting so sloppy with the exposure at the end. And I said, I need help. And I knew once I ratted myself out to him, there was no going back. So that was how that happened.
0: You told your employer you had a stomach-related illness when you were going into rehab. Yes,
1: yes. Yes, I um it was early enough in the morning that nobody was in yet. It was uh, work started around 9:30 and I sent an email and just said I had a medical emergency over the weekend. Um here's what needs to be done, passing off what needed to be done. I'm going to be out of touch this week cuz I knew I was at that point I had decided to check into a 5-day detox. I needed a medicated detox and uh I'll see you next week. And I knew under the privacy laws that they couldn't inquire more into that if I was out for five days. And, uh, and I told them that that was the case. And then I went um, and uh, I was strongly encouraged to take after that a month at least, if not longer, And go away to a rehab somewhere else inpatient. And I refused. I said, and it was strictly because of work. I said, I cannot tell my law firm that this is what happened.
0: What was the big fear there? That you would be fired?
1: No. Um... I I really, it was fear of, there, was, there were several, there was fear of the stigma. I mean, I'd heard for years, you know, people, oh, that, that one's a drunk, that one's an alcoholic. For all I know, it was going on behind my back fully at the time, and I just hadn't heard it. So there was fear of stigma. And in law firms, like in investment banks and other, you know, very intense workplaces, you know, strength, stamina, being able to take it. Those are prized qualities, and I feared being seen as weak or unreliable, or you know, something's wrong with her. And the other piece of it is that I had seen plenty of people go out for a broken leg, for you know, some sort of illness, a treatment for a physical illness. Um, they go out on maternity leave and But and then they come back and I knew how that worked, but I'd never seen someone go to rehab and come back. I didn't. It was just I've never heard of it. And I wasn't going to be the first one.
0: So then how did you manage to go into recovery with these restrictions on yourself?
1: Uh it was not a way I would recommend um, because I wasn't willing to go away. My strong advice to anyone who ever asked me is go away if you can. But I went right back. I went right back to work the next week. And, you know, people said, oh, you know, they were concerned. And um and then people wanted to go out for drinks and hear about it, and the irony I
0: was, there, right,
1: yeah, well, I was able to say you know when when I was in the in the detox, I was diagnosed with major depressive disor- um disorder, which is Probably what I was self-medicating the whole time, and I, I was immediately put on antidepressants, and you're not supposed to drink on antidepressants. So when I told people at work, I can't drink, I'm on this medication from last week, people are like, oh, that's too bad, man, that's that's a bummer. Um, but that was how I got around that, and I, I went to an outpatient rehab two nights a week. and. From there, I started going to 12-step meetings and, and joining a, um 12-step programs. But um, the thing that was astounding to me was, you know, in addiction, you feel so alone and isolated in your brain, like you're the only person who has these crazy thoughts. And then I went into that rehab group that was like an early recovery group. And oh my God, here were 10 people who had the same brain I had. It was unbelievable. The revelation, plus the weight was lifted off me of just like... You know, I wasn't telling work, but I did tell all my family and friends you know not having to carry that around anymore, and not having to do the hard work of of staying on drugs and alcohol that that helped me.
0: You say in the book that people would often say to you, "Well, you don't look like someone who has an addiction. What does someone with an addiction <laughs> look like right just like
1: me." <laughs> <laughs> Um, in fact, yeah, I think, um, I I think that's one of the things that I really hope, um, this book can help, help bring out in that, you know, we're everywhere. We're all over the place and we're in law firms and investment banks and we're in schools and radio stations and everywhere. Um, so, you know, I was very blessed coming out, very lucky coming out of, recovery. I hadn't lost my job. I hadn't lost my apartment. I had incredible support from family and friends. I had the tools to to do this. And um, I know that there are, I'm, I'm hoping that there are people that sort of feel like, well, I must not be an alcoholic or I must not be that, you know, the people don't, they look like something else. They look like, you know, the people I see on the streets at weird hours or the people in, that I see asleep in the subway. Well, them too, but also people you work with every day, the person sitting next to you on the subway.
0: How challenging of a process was it for you to get sober?
1: Uh, very challenging. And I wouldn't say it's it's easy. It's um it requires making a lot of changes. And they told I was told early on, you know, you have to want this more than you've ever wanted anything in your life, and that's true. What was such a defining thing for me in in saying, okay, I want this more than anything, is what the physical transformation felt like. You know, I had been, it was learning the difference between passing out and actually going to sleep. It was buying pajamas and wearing pajamas. Like, I have a thing, you should see, I have lots of pajamas (laughs) now. It's like one of these things, like... You know, that I just never thought these these things that that make me happy, the small things of being able to live like a normal person um, just really count. I mean, thinking about um, not just regretting not having put that money away in the 401k, but thinking about, you know, everybody got depressed. My friends oh, we're turning 40. I was like, yeah, 40. Now I turn 50. I'm like, I can't believe I'm 50. You know, it's all bonus time to me. I feel very grateful for that.
0: So you spent so many years keeping it a secret, hiding it from your employer, from your colleagues. But now here you are talking about it. What inspired you to take this step to share your story with other people?
1: Well, I I, I started reading voraciously um, addiction memoirs when I got out of um, detox. And I wanted to learn all I could. And I loved them. Um, But I didn't find the story of someone like me, um, who didn't lose everything, who didn't get caught somehow, who, um, and who, and who had been in the professional world of New York corporate law, like like I have been. And I felt like there was, that, that my story was missing, but really what happened was, um, all of a sudden I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning after having gotten a decent night's sleep. And you know, when when you're not drinking and blowing lines of cocaine at that hour, you can do a lot of other cool things. And because my family and friends had been so surprised when I came clean with everything, I mean, they were able to then look back and put some pieces together. Um, But I really felt like I, I wanted to somehow memorialize what had happened. And I just started writing... Uh, In the morning for myself, really the story of my five days in the detox unit because it was a pretty crazy experience. I inadvertently checked into, you know, pretty seedy psych hospital on a 72 hour hold. Um, And Hopefully that will help somebody else to do a little research before they go away. So I just started um, writing down what happened so I could – people kept saying, what's the story? Well, here's the story. It gave me a way to tell them. And then I found it cathartic and then I started taking nonfiction courses at night at NYU and then I enrolled in some nonfiction workshops and, you know, I got some encouragement and then I got into a workshop that met once a week and it just sort of snowballed like that.
0: Since you came out with your story, has anyone in the legal profession come to you for personal advice?
1: Yes. Yes. I would say several. Yeah. And it's, I I feel really, really grateful for that. And it's been um, questions. It's been, you know, what do I do? I think maybe, but it's also been a lot of which You know, I knew how to be the case, but it's nice to see it verified. People coming to me and saying, me too. And I've been in recovery for five years. People I worked with 10 years ago saying, you know, I've been in recovery for X number of years.
0: So how long have you been sober now?
1: I have been sober 12 years. It was 12 years in April.
0: Is that something you celebrate when you get around to that anniversary date? Yes. The book is Girl Walks Out of a Bar. Lisa, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Girl Walks Out of a Bar by Lisa F. Smith is out now. It's published by Select Books. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarchy. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV-HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.